Hello to all you nature nerds out there. Welcome to our first episode, and our first discussion episode, where Tyler and I are going to dive into the wonderful world of ecological restoration. Let's find out a little bit more about what that is, and what that means, and why it's so important right now. We're really just scratching the surface here, but it's a great place to start. Welcome to Restoration Nation. And I wasn't expecting the countdown. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I guess it's good. Now that I know it's there, it's good. We need, like, the, the on-air symbol. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Well, uh, if it wasn't obvious enough, this is our first episode. <laughs> um, but I thought, uh, what better way to start the first episode of Restoration Nation than to talk about what what uh, restoration is, uh, what is ecological restoration. So um, I wanted to ask you, Tyler, um, your thoughts on what ecological restoration is. It's kind of a big question. So I thought I'd start with a couple um, definitions real fast, and then we can kind of go from there. Sweet. Um, but the first one I have is is a lot more brief and concise. It's one I like. Um, it's by uh, the Society of Ecological Restoration, and they say that ecological restoration is the process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that has been damaged, degraded, or destroyed. I think that's a pretty good definition. Um, obviously, it's as nice something we'll get into in a minute. Yeah, yeah, it's nice and broad, which is often good, but then also <laughs> it's a pretty complex thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a second but that's why i also included this um the second quote that was in a uh, article in nature um and i can share it on our facebook and instagram but um they give a little bit lengthier explanation um of ecological restoration so that they said that ecological restoration aims to recreate initiate or accelerate the recovery of an ecosystem that has been disturbed Disturbances are environmental changes that alter ecosystem structure and function. Common disturbances include logging, damaging rivers, intense grazing, hurricanes, floods, and fires. Restoration activities may be designed to replicate a pre-disturbance ecosystem or to create a new ecosystem where it had not previously occurred. Restoration ecology is the scientific study of repairing disturbed ecosystems through human intervention. So that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a big old chunk of a definition. <laughs> um, but I do think it encapsulates um, ecological restoration quite well because it is it's a big thing and it's a relatively new thing um, yeah. that humans are are doing, um, at least in the context of like our modern society. We've only been studying and looking into it for the last, I don't know. 40 years or something really with, with, you know, with purpose. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I I think it's a pretty evolving um, definition of what it is because as we learn it, that changes a lot. So I think that's what I like about that. Um, The second, I guess I'll call it an explanation because it's pretty lengthy for a definition, but um, I think it encapsulates it well and really how like um, it reflects a little bit like that it does kind of depend on your goals for that area. So I, I think a lot of ecological restoration is pretty goal dependent. Um, definitely. But yeah. Definitely. What do you, what do you think about those definitions and like, 
Um, anything else that you would add to it or anything like that? I do like the first one because it's broad. Mm -hmm. The process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem is a really good part of that definition because we have learned and continue to learn time and time again that we're not really good at manipulating nature. Like we, we think we are sometimes, and in some cases we're pretty good at it, but Mm -hmm. rarely does it turn out the way we planned especially ecology. I mean, we've gotten fairly decent with medicine in a lot of, you know, contexts, but when it comes to ecology, uh, it's, there are so many different factors hitting every different little Mm -hmm. thing. Um, and we've, like you said, we haven't spent that long really studying it in depth Yeah, and, you know, trying to build an ecosystem from scratch is very complicated. And usually we end up with some, (laughs) unaccounted for mm-hmm. things happening or, or uh, parts of that puzzle that we just never saw coming. Yeah. I guess it's a pretty good reminder that like um, our understanding of the ecosystem as a species compared to other species does not equate our like control of it. Yeah. Um, we do have a lot of things that we can control, but I mean, given all the interactions going on out there and in nature, it's kind of crazy to think that we can, predict them all but i I think there are some really positive things happening too but it is a it is a good reminder all these challenges that we're constantly facing and trying to correct some of these things that um these impacts that we've had it is a good reminder that just because we're getting a better understanding of it doesn't mean we have all power over it we're we're a component of nature not you know an overseer Let's like, yeah, let's like acknowledge our ignorance in it. You know, um, (laughs) usually when we go in there and mess around with it, Mm -hmm. other problems happen, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. that, that second definition disturbances, um, Mm -hmm. is our environmental changes that alter ecosystem structure and function. Sometimes they're intentional. Sometimes they're Mm -hmm. not. We go in there and (laughs) build a building. Historically, they're (laughs) quite unintentional. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of it is we're just we're just now catching up to realizing all of the things we got in there and messed around with. We didn't realize we were messing around with. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. And and we're finally starting to acknowledge that in the future, more of that's going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So on the West Coast, we don't have the spotted lanternfly, which is mm-hmm. a, a big problem for various crops and follows this tree called Tree of Heaven around. We don't have mm-hmm. it yet but we know it will be here. It's just a matter of time. We're going to get it. We're going to get <laughs> the emerald ash borer, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, for those who are listening, um, he's up, uh, Tyler's up in the Pacific Northwest. So yes. he's talking about some of these things and they're like creeping in on my back door because I'm in the, the Southern Appalachians and it's, uh, <laughs> those things are there. Um, some of them are here <laughs> and some of them are like on the way. <laughs> totally. And, and, and yeah. it's, I, but it's the, it's important to like acknowledge that, some we have some control we can we can mm-hmm. slow it down usually or maybe but they're going to show up they're going to spread out so planning ahead right so instead of trying to control everything let's just plan for the inevitable we'll do what we mm-hmm. can in the meantime but then we'll try and set things up so that the whole ecosystem doesn't crash when it shows up yeah so um i guess before we get uh if anyone can't tell, this is stuff we're pretty passionate about, so <laughs> we dive right in quite 
best. So, um, but before we get too far, um, I figured we could go over some like good examples of what ecological restoration is. Cause I, I think there's probably a lot of people out there who have said us or who have heard us say the phrase, um, ecological restoration a bunch of times already in like 15 minutes or whatever, and <laughs> probably wondering what exactly that is, or maybe have a rough idea. Um, it's really easy for us to forget that sometimes terms like that aren't in people's everyday conversations. Um, but yeah, what, what are some good examples of ecological restoration you can throw out? Right. So yeah, good call. Um, <laughs> good call. Slow it down. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, right there with you, man. I was like, <laughs> There's so much to discuss. Get into the thick of it right away. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. Cause it's super diverse. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And, and by no means do I, uh, or, uh, or do we have all the answers and, and all the um, n all the nuance for what actually exists. But mm -hmm. one that uh, comes to mind pretty quick is fragmentation, mm -hmm. um, which is a little different, but it results in a lot of these. Uh, so when we chop up ecosystems into pieces and you lose mm -hmm. connectivity between them, would you consider it ecological restoration to create a solution to that? For instance, those, those overpasses, Absolutely. the wildland overpasses, you would consider that ecological yeah. restoration. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I think it's anything like as kind of the definitions talked about anything that helps restore function to the mm -hmm. overall ecosystem. So wildlife obviously is super valuable, I guess a, an easy way for people to think about it and is commonly the case is, um, you know, say you've got some mammal that's got, I don't know, a 30 mile like home range, like a, it's natural range that it walks around in to eat food and sleep and, and do all the stuff it needs to do. And then you build a road right through the middle of it. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't have a safe place to cross. So on, let's say the left side of the road might be its main source of food. And on the right side of the road is where, um, you know, where it generally sleeps or keeps its young or something like that. And so you've immediately, you've got a problem right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's a lot of nat other natural boundaries that, you know, confine them to that 30 mile radius or, or maybe just the constraints of what they're able to do. But drawing a line through the middle of it is, uh, can cause a big problem real fast. And fragmentation can have impacts on plant communities as well. But one of the easiest ways to think about that and, and very relevant is, um, a lot of plants uh, rely on animals to eat the seed and pass it somewhere else. And that helps spread, spread plant populations. So without those kind of relationships, and there's, you know, thousands of those kind of relationships um, out there between insects, animals, mm -hmm. um, fungi, plants, everything. Oh, if you're getting insects uh, into this, there's millions of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is like ecological restoration. You're talking about the ecosystem, you know, that's a pretty, pretty big and wild thing. And I think that's one of the things, you know, we're talking about is, um, you know, trying to have some sort of control over that situation is a pretty daunting task because there's a lot of factors, a lot of things at play. But it's interesting. I think that's that's a cool thing for people to know and be aware of. And I think it brings a lot, helps bring a lot of value to why ecological restoration is so important. Because mm -hmm. you can see how throwing us in the mix with a lot of our 
the modern ways we live our life can really, um, you know, shake up the system pretty good. Uh, fragmentation being a big part of that, you know, as, sure. as we expand out into forest and things like that. And, you know, I live in a mountain town. I love living in a mountain town. It's gorgeous. I have access to so much recreation and all of that, but um, that's also a common thing right now. And these towns in the middle of forests and near important habitat are becoming more populated. So that's something we also have to navigate and, and figure out the best way um, to coexist. Like we were talking about earlier, we're, we're a component right. of nature. We got to find a way to, to fit in that puzzle piece still and, and still maintain the type of um, lifestyle that we've created. Yeah, we can't, we can't, uh, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> North America, at least most of the habitat is disturbed in one way or another yep. by this point, but, um, but not all <laughs> of it is not functional. That's true. That's, that's an important distinction, I think. Yeah. And there's a lot being done to restore a lot of the function. Um, so if there's one thing humans are good at, it's, it's being creative. That's for sure. Like, um, <laughs> actually to, to bring back up, um, your first example of like ecological restoration following fragmentation it, it, those um what do they call them wildlife crossings i think something like um, that yeah we can get cold to fact check that but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i'm pretty sure it's wildlife crossings and um for anyone who doesn't know what that is or what that looks like just imagine um any bridge you might see over a highway um but instead of for other cars it's for um animals to cross. So it's, you know, on top of that, um, cover they've put over the road, then there's layers of, um, I think even rock, but especially mm -hmm. like soil. And then it'll if have you Google grasses it, and small trees and if you yeah. Google it, first thing that shows up wildlife crossing. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Okay. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> I had it the whole time, <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're really cool. And they've, um, I think a lot of those, um, this is something we can fact check, but I'm pretty sure um, some of the first examples of that were up in Banff National Park up okay. in Canada. I believe they were one of the first people to do it. Maybe it's more of a thing like on a large scale or something, or maybe the first people to do a study on it after having constructed it. Um, but they did do a study on it. And um, Again, we'll fact check the the nitty gritty details of it, but I, I do know that it um, it did decrease like the the rate of um, what should we call it like automobile automobile accidents like sure um, sure with like yeah, deer just, like, accidents and elk in general or yeah just with with animals crossing even bear and stuff like that mm. um, so they were able to reduce the number of of incidents um, so you're reducing the number of people getting hurt. Um, they saw uh, they had put up like cams on the wildlife crossing and like get a record of how many different species are using it. And it was actually a pretty astounding amount. Um, anything cool. from small mammals to large mammals, like bears and things crossing, um, which is huge, you know, that really helps uh, maintain their, um, their habitat. I mean, like we were talking about earlier, if they're, they're split up from their food source or whatever, they've now got access to that. And it's a lot safer for them because you do see animals trying to cross roads sure. and it and like, typically what a, doesn't turn out well. What a small, like, what a small, simple 
change to make. You know, an overpass is probably a little bit more complicated, but you can just as well make a a, a road that goes up and have an underpass and anything can cross through. And Mm -hmm. it's not that complicated, especially in a mountain town. I mean, you you run into them all the time either way. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's such an easy addition we can add to these roads and make life a little simpler for us, a little better for the animals. Yeah, That's yeah, I, I think it's a great example of how creative mm-hmm. we can get, you know, with things like that. Um, it's such a cool idea. It's just like an it's a nature bridge. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> it's really cool, and it's I think it's one of those things where it's as soon as you see a picture of it or like you hear it described, you're like, that makes so much sense. Right. Why wouldn't we have just a place for them to cross? It's safer for everybody. Yeah. Let's just do that. And they learn to use it really well. They 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 learn that that's safe, and they know like it's it's a very quick change. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is really really Um, cool. And then what about like the restoration that you work on? Because that's a little different, or the kind of stuff that you sort of work on, I guess. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a big one um, out here and, and out where you're at, too, is um, dealing with a lot of the non-native invasive species mm-hmm. that are everywhere. So um, in particular out here, you've got the um, Asiatic bittersweet, which is this climbing vine um, that really thrives out here. Um, and it'll it'll climb up trees and girdle them and take them out of the canopy. And then as soon as it does that, that opens up sunlight um, onto the forest floor. And then it loves that too. And it just continues to blow up. So you can see how it's easily a vicious cycle where you've got this, this really aggressive plant that's shade tolerant um, that can establish in the understory. And then as soon as it starts pulling down trees, uh, while it is shade tolerant, it still loves it some sun and it'll, it'll just explode and take over a forest. And it's kind of, I think it can be hard to imagine how one plant can tear down, you know, acres of a forest, but it sure does. And I've seen it. Um, And so that's something, you know, that, that we have to address um, because it will continue to uh, degrade forests. And I mean, there will always be pockets where maybe it won't compete as well with other shrubs or, other vines or things like that, but it, it's, it's impact is, is quite massive already. And, and that's concern enough, I'd say. Um, and you know, there's a plethora of other regions that I'm sure we'll, um, talk about in the coming episodes that forests are struggling. Um, and so this is just, you know, another, uh, another, um, <laughs> douse of, uh, <laughs> lighter fluid in the fire, but, um, yeah, I mean, dealing with non-native invasive species can be huge. There's a there's a really big range of how impactful they are. Some are, um, you know, to the point where we just consider them, they've been here a long time, they're not really impacting or the ecosystem, and you may even consider them naturalized at that point. Sure. So there are ones like that, and then there are things like the Asiatic bittersweet that's, you know, detrimental. Um, a lot of people have heard of kudzu too. That's a wild one. Um, quick, quick Google image search, and you've you've probably seen it if you've been anywhere in um, out east, the, the east what, side of the country. What do they call it? The vine that swallowed the south, or something like that. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. And like, and, there's no. Uh, go ahead. I was gonna say up in uh, and up in the Pacific Northwest, blackberry. 
it's all blackberry everything out yeah. here is just blackberry Man, and that stuff is aggressive and it's delicious <laughs> yeah but it is is that a native one no uh it's so you have a non-native yeah oh yeah we have several actually we do have a native blackberry um Mm -hmm. this but it's much smaller much less aggressive um Mm -hmm. it's also common um but the one that people in this area will associate is the Mm -hmm. himalayan blackberry which is actually Mm. apparently from armenia It's just misnamed, but, um, yeah. but it's, it, that's the, the, the invasive that I think would be one of the most well-knowns in this area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. I didn't know that. It sounds like similar. We have, um, out East here, we've got, uh, a rose, a non-native rose that, that, you know, there is a native rose out here, but you're pretty much whenever you're seeing rose it's gonna be. <clears throat> occurring in like big old shrubs often along like, um, old logging roads and coves and stuff like that um it's it's always the the non-native and it can get pretty i've seen it pretty aggressive even to the point where it's like kind of climbing into the canopy despite the fact that it's usually a lower sitting shrub but it'll get up into trees so here's the question is it really pretty like when it flowers (laughs) is it a really no for real though because i mean yes it's it's gorgeous and that's how it got here. Yep. Exactly. Right. That's we, so, cherry trees blooming right now everywhere. Yeah. Stunning cherry trees. Yeah. Really, really destructive to your forests. <laughs> yeah. And and to your point, the key distinction between the non-native rose and the native rose out here is that the native rose has single flowers, whereas the non-native rose has clusters of flowers. It's um, it's actually aptly named uh, multiflora rose. There's just tons of flowers. It's got way more flowers on it. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, naturally it's, it's gorgeous. But um, yeah, to your point, that's that's how it got here. Uh, that's a common story is ornamentals for sure. Yeah. Um, a lot. There's a lot of pretty trees out there. I get the temptation, but um, you got to be careful because some of them can escape cultivation I, yeah. um, a lot easier than others. <laughs> yeah. So. I feel like we've covered pretty well, you know, the impact of these invasive species and and how some of them got here. But um, let's dive into a little bit more about uh, the actual restoration part of it, how we can handle some of these. And, um, you know, I can think of a few different basic methods of removal. But uh, if you want to expand on that, Tyler. So there's a lot of different ways you can split this up. But in my mind, at least... It breaks down into a few categories. We have mechanical, we have biological controls, we have chemical controls, and we have the potential of using disturbance regimes, which I'm separating from mechanical a little bit. So we'll tackle those in order. Mechanical um, is the most direct and easy to understand. It's mm-hmm. We're talking about weeding your garden. Um, but doing this in large native spaces, pulling out trees, cutting them down maybe, um, getting a team of people out there to pull weeds. Uh, this is a really common thing that volunteer groups do mm-hmm. where they will organize a large group of people to come out to a public area and pull unwanted weeds from it. That's one example of mechanical we can also use machinery to do it uh mowing is actually an option if you Mm. get out there and mow before 
Um, certain plants will set seed. We can control them in that way. Uh, biological is an interesting one, um, and one that is everyone is is often very hesitant to apply mm-hmm. for good reason. Um, we are full of examples of something that was attempting to be a biological control, something we were going to use to try and control another invasive. And we brought in, a, you know, a natural natural predator or parasite of this mm-hmm. one plant, and we thought, oh, this is we've got a handle on this. It's just going to attack that, and then um, when it kills out its food source, it's going to either die or at least not affect any of the other things in the area. Naturally, uh, we <laughs> weren't able to predict all of the impacts, and yeah. in some cases, we actually ended up spreading even worse invasives <laughs> because of that. There are, however, really, really successful examples um, as well. Um, and there's a lot of people doing uh, great research into exactly this, uh, this type of interaction all over the world. One of the common controls that does get um, a lot of attention is chemical controls. So using um, pesticides, herbicides to control plants. And this is definitely a a, a double-edged sword. Um, You know, we have heard a lot about Roundup, which is uh, the brand name for a product that uses glyphosate mm-hmm. as its herbicide. And um, amongst other chemicals that are in the mix of Roundup, there are other glyphosate products as well. But uh, it's been shown, you know, it's it's an herbicide, it's a harmful chemical. It's been shown to potentially have health risks associated. Um, and other kind of environmental impacts, although uh, glyphosate is a lot better than some other options. Uh, Probably you've heard of DDT (laughs) as a uh, pesticide that was used in the past um, and is now banned in the U.S. because of how detrimental the effects were Mm -hmm. to the environment. Um, There is lots of information about DDT and and how bad that was. And we're still dealing with a lot of the impacts of that today. Yeah. But um, there's a large upside to chemical controls as well. Uh, They make an incredibly effective method of controlling invasive plants. We can even use selective herbicides. There are herbicides that impact only certain types of plants. So if you're in a a prairie and you're trying to get rid of an invasive plant out there, some sort of broadleaf of some kind and everything else out there is a native grass, you can go through with a selective herbicide that only affects broadleafs and not have to worry about the native grasses because they won't be impacted by that herbicide so it does give us a lot of control and um, it's really easy to apply which means that we can cover a large area as well 
So chemical controls are really an important and useful tool in the kind of toolkit of uh, environmental restoration. I think that most companies and um, individuals would like to use less or at least decrease the need for some of these chemical controls. Um, I know I want to avoid using them as much as possible, but there are a lot of circumstances where there is simply no other way to get the job done and we need to use them. The last one that I haven't really covered is the disturbance one that I mentioned, which I, I, I tend to think about as a sort of a subset of mechanical perhaps, but disturbance controls. So using things like like flooding and fire or even potentially tilling of land, mm -hmm. um, earth moving, something that causes a disturbance to the area and sort of upsets that balance if used correctly can help us control some plant species. And actually this has been a common practice in a lot of areas. Using burns is one of the greatest examples of managing large areas um, for certain habitat. Uh, if you want to keep away encroaching conifer habitat and you want these open prairies, burns are one of the best ways to do that. It'll, it'll yeah. keep grasses, it'll promote health in grasses and mm -hmm. forbs and maybe some small shrubs but it knocks down things like large trees that aren't adapted to that sort of fire. Um, flooding is also a big one in the Southwest. They, uh, there are a lot of dams. We have a lot of control over how rivers flow now uh, all across the world actually. But um, if we are able to mimic some of the native flooding, the, the flooding regimes that were native to the area that were standard, um, we tend to give the advantage to those native species which had adapted to that, that disturbance regime. Man, yeah, that was a really good summary of all the um, different methods of non-native invasive uh, species control. Yeah, so that's, that's another great example of ecological restoration. Um, I think we've we skipped over one of the biggest ones um, that people often think about, and that's tree planting, planting trees. Ooh, all right. Uh, so, so tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, the typical story there, there's a lot of different reasons we may have lost forest. Um, uh, obvious ones are, you know, um, civilization. <laughs> we take down a lot of forest to create space. Um, but beyond that, we've also got high intensity, large scale wildfires that are taking out big chunks of forest. And so the problem is we've got um, conditions that are, are changing quite rapidly in our forest. And it's kind of a multi-pronged thing um, where part of the situation is uh, fire used to be um, present on the landscape a lot more often, like like wildfire, natural wildfire. Um, we, we didn't know this up until relatively recently, um, but fires were a natural part of, of the ecosystem. Um, and when I say we, I guess I mean, um, post like colonialization, 
Um, did I say that word right? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> you know and that's a great point to make too. That's a huge point to make. Yeah. Native Americans were, were very dialed in. Um, actually kind of relating to what we were talking about earlier, um, you know, realizing that we're a component of nature and not overseers of it. Native Americans had a, a, a great relationship with nature and they definitely saw themselves as a component as, as part of the overall function. And they played a critical role, including um, some fire as well. There were, um, there are a lot of examples of them stewarding land incredibly yeah. well of, of managing it in a, in a, sort of hands, mostly hands off approach that, you know, yeah. working with the processes that occur naturally mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, that's an interesting case where you've got something anthropogenic that was part of the natural ecosystem because you don't see that as much anymore, but the way the native Americans were using a tool like fire on the landscape, you know, over thousands of years that becomes part of the overall function of an ecosystem. So that's just interesting. But in in more recent history, without those wildfires and the use of fire on the landscape, um, conditions really changed. You know, you have a big buildup of fuels that were burning off more regularly um, in a natural occurring ecosystem. But, you know, in in our modern society, we saw fire bad. Because, you know, fire hurts, it's dangerous, it endangers communities. So you see a fire, you put it out, um, which makes sense. I get that. <laughs> um, but part of what what resulted from doing that was a, a loss of that, that fire um, in the ecosystem. And so now we've got these big fires that are burning and, and couple that with climate change, you know, a lot of areas are drying out. A lot of the pine forests out West are becoming a lot more dry. Um, and so you've got a buildup of fuel that's much drier <laughs> and the loss of, of other forests, you know, you can actually create windier conditions too, um, which also fuels big old fires. So you've got these giant fires that are uncharacteristic of natural fires of the past and are clearing massive sections of forest. And I think one of the easy questions to ask is, well, won't they regenerate themselves? Hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that's that's an easy first question is, okay, they've burned up. They've burned in the past, you know, plants spread their seeds around, it'll grow back. And, And that's largely true. And I do think, you know, given a big enough time scale, that will happen. But part of the equation is that um, it's almost creating fragmentation in a similar way that more of a short-term fragmentation where you've got seed sources that are miles and miles and miles apart. And then you've also got drier conditions, changing conditions where the species might not be able to establish as readily as it did before it had these massive fires that cleared out populations. So mm-hmm. you, you've now got limited seed source to fill in these massive, massive gaps because all your seed source is on the edge. And then you've also got more difficult conditions for these trees to establish. So we're left with these big old patches that so, aren't regenerating. So what do we do, Sam? We plant trees. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff you can do, really. And and there there is, um, you know, benefit to having gaps in the forest uh, on some level that to is having, a natural thing. To having, like, like um, 
to having heterogeneity, to having differences in structure, right? That's yeah, the exactly. that's the bonus. But having giant swaths of the forest that are completely cleared is aren't always as helpful, <laughs> especially at this scale when you've when you've got lots of that happening because mm-hmm. um, there's pretty much. So the interesting thing is you can look at any kind of landscape, whether it's a, a grassland, a swamp, um, a, a big um, open forest with old growth or a newly establishing forest with a bunch of young trees. You, you look at anything across the board, it does have habitat value, like it does have wildlife value. But the problem is when you've got giant swaths of it where um, there's no... Um, you know, variability in those structures yeah. where, where there didn't used to be, that's when you run into big problems. So, you know, it's natural to have different parts of the forest that have different structure. Um, for example, when you've got an edge of a forest where you've got a bunch of trees and then all of a sudden there's like shrubs in an open area, that edge is really good for a lot of different kinds of wildlife. Um, I'm trying to think of some examples. I know a lot of birds benefit from it. Um, and oh, I'm yeah, sure there's yeah. a plethora of others. Edge habitat's um, a big deal, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the natural, you know, variation of habitat is good, but when you've got big old sections of it with none of that variability in a space where there used to be a lot of variability that can really interrupt habitat. Sure. So um, a good way for us to address that is to, try and speed up the process before we lose wildlife. So we've got to restore some of these habitats. And, and while, you know, as we said, theoretically, um, that forest could regenerate over, you know, a thousand years, it'll start to fill in these really big gaps. But what will we lose in the meantime? And, and because this is an uncharacteristic, you know, event that created a gap this large, you know, that, that doesn't mm-hmm. really follow the, the natural order of things of, you, you know, species are going to come and go. They have and they always will. Um, but what we have to take into consideration, especially in ecological restoration, is what are we losing because of our additional impact, because of humans' additional impact? Right. Since we've changed the fire regime, how many mm-hmm. fires there are, how hot they burn, we're losing either bigger areas or the fires burn so hot that the seed regeneration doesn't happen the way it used to, but problems like that, where we're not, Mm -hmm. we've changed the disturbance. And because we changed the disturbance, the fire, the fire, the forest rather, doesn't um, regenerate the way it's supposed to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and even fires where maybe they didn't occur um, quite as often because conditions are changing too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's something we'll start to see where, where fire becomes more prevalent in an area than usual. So on top of the extra fuel and all of that, you've also got, you know, areas that maybe weren't burning as much before. And a lot of the species there may not be adapted to that. Sure. Um, cause a, a lot of the, the species that exist in areas that had a natural fire regime were, were adapted to that. Like pine trees are a great example. There are several species of um, pine trees that have cones that um, will not readily open up to spread seed unless they've had the impact of fire. Um, I believe it's serotonous cones. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So like, that's a great example of where they're adapted. Um, so you've got, there's, there's just so many <laughs> impacts. I feel like we could, we could talk about this all day. I mean, we haven't even touched on the loss of natural resources. Um, you know, some of these fires are impacting timber species as well. And, sure. um, you know, we rely on timber for a lot of things in, um, in the modern world. It's a, it's a very common uh, component of a lot of modern products that we use every day. So, yeah, I mean, um, we can at least get the ball rolling on restoring some of those resources and, and restoring habitat by, by planting trees. Yeah. So, all right. So we've got, um, changes to disturbance because it's, you're talking about Mm -hmm. more extreme disturbance, which is a huge one, but another Mm -hmm. one is, uh, another option. The, the flip side of that same coin is the lack of disturbance. Um, Mm -hmm. when, uh, when we were both living in the Southwest, one of the Mm -hmm. biggest issues they face there is that the typical, the the flooding that should occur naturally down those Mm -hmm. rivers has kind of stopped because we put dams in place. We control the flow of the water. So they don't get these seasonal rushes of water that they used to, which would actually clear certain things out. The invasive Mm -hmm. species, the invasive fish, the fish that aren't supposed to be there tend not to be able to handle that kind of disturbance. And the natives can, and because we don't have that now, the invasive fish are overrunning. So, so, that's literally many. a downstream effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a downstream effect. <laughs> but so too much disturbance, too little disturbance. We, we have these impacts that are so all consuming in every direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not every impact is negative, but so many of them are. And at least, especially what me and you tend to deal with, we see a lot of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think it's encouraging that, you know, I think with, with any problem just in life, the first step is uh, is recognizing that it's there. <laughs> so I think, you know, I try to stay, it's hard to some days, but I try to stay as optimistic as I can about ecological restoration and, and the state of the world and the state of nature, because that's what it's going to take, you know, and I, yeah. I think at least... We're recognizing it, we're studying it, and we're starting to do things about it. And I think that's something for people to get excited about, get really excited about. And, you know, everyone's going to have a days where, you know, with any challenge, there's going to be times where things feel um, insurmountable. But, you know, that's a moment. And then the rest (laughs) of the time, you, (laughs) you know, you have to lift each other up and encourage each other and get excited about what it is we can do. So I think that's an important distinction too, because something I hear often is the, you know, it's overwhelming. There's mm-hmm. a lot going on. I mean, we've barely even scratched the surface on all the different types of ecological restoration. <laughs> oh my God, I can't, yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's already so much, but um, <laughs> people should know and we'll get a chance to talk to some of these people and talk about it in more detail. But um, with everything we've named so far, there are many, many people who are working really hard right now to try and address some of these problems. And I think that's pretty dang cool. Yeah. 
that's something we should we should talk about. So we, we've thrown out a lot of examples of what ecological restoration is, and um, you know different components of it, a little bit of the history and and where we're going to go moving forward, things like that. But I think we talked about a big a lot of big lofty things, and and you were just starting to talk about something that I think is helpful for people, and that's like what can they do? What sure. can everyday people do? So one of the things you said. Um, plant some native species. So that that is on some scale ecological restoration. So wherever you are locally, you can find, if you Google native nursery, you're going to find one somewhere um, in your region, in your area. And they're, at least in my experience, every native nursery I've been to is full of very passionate people about the native plants there that are excited that you're even asking. Very, very um, passionate. Yeah. And I think, honestly, you would have some fun. Anyone would just go in there and asking them about some cool plants that you can plant around. Um, and I think that's one great thing that everybody can do. Anybody can do. There are native plant alternatives uh, in a lot of areas that will replace most of the landscaping plants you would typically use yeah. um, and will provide much more benefit to the the land and the wildlife, if you want it, whatever it is. Yeah, very true. And, and I think, you know, no one should feel bad about having some non-native plants in their yard or whatever. I we I can speak for both of us, I think, when I say we totally get it. Like, yeah. I love a pretty tree. I love a pretty flower. I love a pretty bush. Like, nature's really cool. Lots of beautiful colors and structures, and it's all awesome. And I totally get wanting to have some cool stuff in your yard and in your That's area. Fine. But, um, you know, this is what we do is the more we learn, the more we adapt. And like Tyler said, there are some awesome alternatives out there. Um, native alternatives to a lot of the things that you've probably seen planted as, as ornamentals as pretty stuff around the neighborhood. Um, and, and it's a fun thing to learn about too. It's interesting to think, think about what, where your house is or your land, what that looked like a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago. And it's, it's cool and it's interesting. And um, I think it's really cool to take some of those native plants that likely existed, um, you know, that, that thrived in this area that you're in and put them back there. It's kind of a cool thing and, and see how they thrive. Yeah. And that's in it, it, end from like, a personal standpoint i mean it's they often require less care <laughs> yeah i mean it's just they, they are adapted to the environment you're in yeah. so you probably don't have they're to from there it's their much. hometown yeah yeah exactly <laughs> they're doing good they're made for that spot um yeah and we often even have like cultivated versions of them that are mm -hmm close to the same but maybe have more flowers if you want like a little bit showier kind of plant mm -hmm. you can still get a native version that does that it might not be the mm -hmm. kind of inconspicuous plant you might see in the forest it might be something a little bit more robust than you're used to even yeah um yeah i think um another awesome thing that people can do is to um like google the name of your town or your county and then the word conservation, and you're going to find organizations in your area that are doing cool work. Um, and whether, um, you, you know, if it's 
if you're someone, it's easy for you to get out. Um, you have a lot of mobility and, and can get out and do things. Those groups are always looking for volunteers to help out. There's so much work to do. Um, mm -hmm. Oftentimes they're running on pretty small budgets and are trying to do awesome work out there and rely on, on volunteers. And even if you can't get out there, there's still other ways to get involved. You can um, attend some of their like seminars and webinars and um, get involved in the conversation. You can donate if that's something you're able to do. Um, but, but even just getting involved and being a part of the conversation helps, it helps a lot because yeah. You know, the more people that are invested in it and are talking about it and share it with the people around them, the more we're going to get things done, the more progress will be made. So, um, yeah, I mean, any of those things are, are great. Whatever, whatever you think you can do. Um, and it can be it. really simple. You can just head out with, a you know, there's a million friends of name any yeah. uh, na like uh, natural, natural forest. Or, yeah. Yeah. Friends of the Columbia River, friends, friends of whatever. Um, there are yeah. a million groups named that, and they're they're usually oh, let's get a group of volunteers out, and we're going to plant some things, or we're going to pull some weeds. You mm -hmm. can learn something. You spend a couple of hours on a Saturday yeah. or something like that. Um, generally, you meet some really cool people doing it. Uh, it's not much of a commitment, and you can have a pretty good impact doing it. Yeah, and I will say um, most of most, if not all of those groups, um, I can tell you from my experience being on the other end of it, that any amount of time you're willing to put forth is, is helpful. Yeah. Even if you can't come out there for the whole day or, or whatever, I can almost guarantee you they're going to appreciate that you came out at all and showed interest. And if um, you show up saying, Hey, I want to learn some plants. Oh boy. You're going to Get ready. You're going to have a best friend <laughs> real quick. <laughs> Us plant nerds really like to talk about Oh, plants. my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this one's no good for this reason. Oh, you should pull yeah. this one whenever you see it. And it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, if you can't invest money or you don't want to invest money, you can invest time. And that's a, that's probably a better investment anyways. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And there's a lot of really great opportunities out there. Um, even beyond local, like, organizations like that there's also um you can call your nearest um, forest service ranger station you can usually search oh that's um, a good idea if you search like your county or even your state you can find out where all the ranger stations are um not every county has a ranger station so um you can search your state or region and um forest service ranger station give them a call um, or send them an email. I, I actually, you'd be surprised how often you will get a response from somebody um, there. You can find email addresses on the Ranger District website, um, and they can give you recommendations for um, volunteer events or other ways to get involved or even help you find some of those cool organizations because um, they're often working together on stuff mm -hmm. or or are at least communicating about some of the work that's being done. So, um there's a great network of people out there. Um, lots of good resources and ways to reach out and, and get involved. And um, as Tyler said, there's almost always just an awesome group of people and you'll probably end up making some friends. <laughs> it's one of the best parts of environmental field in general is yeah. um, there's so many great people in it. 
yeah, I I feel like we got a really good overview of ecological restoration. You know, inevitably some things we probably didn't talk about or or whatever. You know, it's a pretty big, broad world. But um, I guess my hope with this first episode was just to get people thinking about what restoration is and what that means and give them a, at least a little bit of a, a platform to dive off of into the, the broader world. Yeah, because and... we didn't even touch, well, restoration, which just as a little extra piece here, <laughs> we didn't even touch the fact that um, everything that we talked about is terrestrial. Very true. And and generally because of where me and you live and, and where we've gone to school, it's mm-hmm. centered on sort of the um, A, northern hemisphere and, and B, temperate climate. Um, yeah. which man, I mean, you go down to anywhere along the equator, things change a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, or you go into the oceans and there is a whole other world of restoration going on. That's there. a that big is, old conversation. Oh yeah. That's that. And neither of us, I think have done much of that. <laughs> no. And I think that's where we're going to, we're going to have to find us somebody good to talk to Yeah, about that one. I think that'll be a fun one for us. Cause we'll be able to ask a lot of, I mean, we're going to have fun with all of them and ask lots of questions, but um, that'll be a real interesting one because it's going to be like way out of our wheelhouse, but um, also extremely important and, um, you know, something we may have to talk about more on another episode, but um, oceans are a big indicator of our overall, um, the health of of nature in the world, like the health of our planet. Um, oceans are a huge indicator of that. And there's a lot of different things that are good indicators of um, on different scales. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the what's going on in the ocean is a big one. I know that it's a big one, but I there's a lot of stuff I don't know about it. So that, that'll be a fun one to explore. Definitely. No, yeah, that's a, yeah. uh, and I didn't want to derail it, but I just, that's such a such a huge piece that we are not we didn't talk about yeah yeah and i think that's something um anyone who's listening you know that's that's what we've got coming up that's what we're hoping to do is to dive into all these um these different areas of restoration and within each one that we've mentioned and all the ones that we haven't there's different gets down to a lot of really specific stuff and specific areas and specific species that are impacted. And there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. And um, I think we're pretty excited. Hope you y'all are too, to, to kind of dive into some of that stuff and um, yeah, just see how big this world really is. <laughs> it's so hard while we're talking to not go down the rabbit hole every time we bring up one little like angle, mm-hmm. one one piece of the puzzle and to not just mm-hmm. attach to that piece and start trying to pick it apart into into smaller and smaller pieces and think about it. Yeah. I Keeping think, it at I overviews think... is a struggle. <laughs> well, th- it's just this one. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to we're going to be hopping into some specifics. Oh, know, thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it is hard. It's hard to know where to stop. You just love trees. You love planting trees so much. Uh, I'm a well, I just love trees in general. I'm just a tree nerd. <laughs> I love me a good tree. Uh trees are neat. Trees are neat. Yeah. Trees are, are real neat and I like them a lot. But I do recognize they're only a piece of the puzzle. I know that. But I, I am partial to 
to trees, I will say. They're, it, they're pretty cool. You likes yourself a good tree. I do. I do <laughs> likes me a good tree. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, man. I'd say that's a that's an episode. I like it. That was, <laughs> um, yeah, it was good. <laughs> thanks for listening to Restoration Nation. A special thanks to Zach Went for creating the music, and a shout-out to Cody Half Moon and David Roberts, as well as everybody who contributed to our Kickstarter campaign. This podcast is brought to you by With Trees Project. After all, it's a wonderful world with trees.